Would you turn again, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6? One Corinthians is an ideal combination because it was written by a man who loved Jesus and saw that the gospel is central to everything. And he was writing to a church that he knew and a church that was full of problems. Why does that make it an ideal combination? Well, because it means here's a letter full of practical advice about real situations, real life problems that are faced by churches. It's about specific issues, but it has Jesus and his gospel at the center of it all, as the foundation of it all. That's an ideal combination. Now, I want us to see that now in 1 Corinthians 6. We're going through this letter fairly at a fairly good pace, and we've got to chapter 6. And we're going to go through this evening verses 1 to 8 of 1 Corinthians 6. I'm hoping the way that we do this will help you with reading the Bible for yourself. Because what we're going to do is take it in three stages. I'm hoping this will model for you how to take a chapter of the Bible and figure out what should you respond. How should you respond to it? Because we're going to go through the verses, then see them in the bigger context of the main theme of 1 Corinthians, always put what you're reading in the bigger context. And then we're going to ask, well, how's this relevant to us? What are we supposed to do about it? There's our three stages that I hope is a model to you. Through the verses, think about the bigger context, then ask, well, what's the relevance? So, first of all, let's simply go through the verses, verse by verse, verses 1 to 8. First, we find a problem in verse 1. If any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? There's been a disagreement between two, at least two Christians in Corinth. We don't know what it is. We're not told what it is. So I'll make something up as a suggestion. Like, I'm not saying this is what it is, but let's have an example. It could be like this. Kamal says that Katie owes him money. And she says, no, I've paid you back everything I owed you. And each one thinks they've been wronged by the other person. How do they sort it out? Oh, one takes the other to court, hires a solicitor, makes accusations. has got the legal profession involved. That's the sort of thing that's gone on behind verse 1 of chapter 6. What does the Apostle Paul think of this? Well, when you're reading the Bible, get clues from the sort of language used. What language does Paul use for what they're doing in verse 1? We have some clues. He says, you are going to the ungodly instead of going to saints. And he's purposely used that language. He could have said you've gone to court and you should have gone to church. But he says you've gone to the ungodly. In other words, you have gone to get help from people whose character is the opposite of God. God, the just and fair judge. But there are people around who are saints. They don't appear on stained glass windows. They haven't had the church designate them as saints. It means Christians, but it emphasizes this. They are set apart by God and belong to him. You should have gone to them. 
As we move into verse 2 and 3, which we'll do now, we get another language clue of what Paul thinks. Because you keep finding a phrase in 1 Corinthians. There it is at the start of verse 2. Do you not know? If you read through 1 Corinthians, you'll keep hearing this. It's in verse 3. Do you not know? It's again in verse 9. Do you not know? And you'll spot it in other places if you read through the book. Here's a church that was proud of its knowledge. They thought they were clever people who knew it all. And here, the Apostle Paul is saying to them, don't you even know what a Christian is? Don't you even know who you are? You are someone who, when Jesus comes back, you will play a part in him judging the world. You're even going to play a part in him judging the angels. Now, that is a trial more serious than the Nuremberg trials. That is a judgment more important than anything the International Criminal Tribunal does. So he's saying, can't you sort out a trivial case of Kamal and Katie can't agree about which one owes the other one money? Next we move into verse 4, just taking each verse rapidly and giving you the meaning. Now, verse 4 we get a bit of a, it's a little difficult actually. There's a difficulty of translation and there's a difficulty because possibly Paul is being sarcastic. Sarcasm is rare in the Bible because it's usually biting and unkind and we should avoid sarcasm usually. But here he seems to be saying something sarcastic. Uh, If you've got an NIV like me, the NIV is a good, reliable translation, but it sometimes underplays things. And where it says men of little account in the church, it's more like men disdained by the church. And Paul's saying something like this. If you've got uh, if you've got a little uh, a little issue to sort out, go on, appoint men who are disdained by the church to sort it out. Sarcasm. He's saying these are people who are far from God, clueless about what life is about. They're ruled by sin. Oh well, go on then. If you need a problem sorted, why don't you go to them? A bit of sarcasm to make the points. He's saying, you think you're such a wise church. Can't you see how foolish this is to go to them to sort out your problems? Just think about what their area is. It's not this one. I have a friend who's amazingly good with cars. I'm amazed. I went around his house and there were all these car parts on the floor of his garage. And he was putting them back together. And I'm amazed at how he knows how a car goes together. Would you go to him to have a broken leg sorted out? Now, I wouldn't recommend it. He's great with cars, but I doubt he's that good with broken legs. It's not his area. It's not his area of expertise. Now, an unbeliever might be very good at certain things. I'm sure that you could go to an unbeliever to learn how to play the piano. And she might be very good at teaching you that. That's her area. That's fine. We shouldn't be fundamentalists who think there's nothing to learn from unbelievers. We can learn from them. But you don't go to her, however good she is at playing the piano, to learn how to mend relationships in the church. To learn how a follower of Jesus should respond to a fallout. It's not her area. Her approach will be nothing like that of Jesus. 
There's another reason they shouldn't be taking each other to court if we move to the next verse, verse 5. Verse 5, I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? Oh, Corinthians, you are proud. You are such a wise church. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Isn't there anyone wise enough to sort out this little argument between a couple of Christians? Now, I want to step aside and sense from the main flow of my sermon because there's something here I couldn't figure out where to put it in. Because later on we're going to have some application and I was going to have as part of my application see what a positive view of the church there is here. This is not just a chapter saying don't go to court with believers. It's a chapter saying, look, the church should be a community of wise people who've got great things ahead of them when Jesus returns and who should listen to each other and help each other with problems and sort out these things. And it's a positive view of the church. And I've had to drop that because it's I've realised I was trying to stuff too much into one sermon. We haven't got time. But I must make time for this. must make time for this. Do not turn what it says here about can't you sort it out yourselves, deal with it within the church, don't go to unbelievers. We mustn't turn it into this. When there's a case of abuse, we'll sort it out and we won't go to the police, we won't go to the authorities. I, I saw an interview on, uh, on the internet, there, there was a church was interviewing ministers who were retired now and asking them about their experiences. And one was asked about... You know, what were difficult cases you came across? And he talked about how someone came to him and admitted he'd been abusing children. What a difficult case. But this man was now repentant. And he had the joy and the good news of being able to restore this person because he was repentant. But that minister never said, that was a great joy, and I reported him to the police. Now maybe he did, but he didn't say it. And that was a big mistake not to say it. Because we must be clear that there are cases that we don't just say, we'll deal with it in-house. When there's been abuse, when people have acted criminally against another in a way that's abusive, yes, we in the church should have the wisdom to deal with it and to say, but we must take such things to the authorities. It's really sad, I have to say this, but if you read your evangelical newspapers, you know I do have to say it, because sadly, abuse cases do happen in the church. And we're not to be like those churches that cover them up. That's quite contrary to the spirit of 1 Corinthians 6. Okay, that was an aside. Let's get back into the flow of these verses. Here's another reason they shouldn't be taking each other to court. Verse 6. Verse 6. But instead, one brother goes to law against another, and this in front of unbelievers. You're doing this in front of unbelievers. Just think, Corinthians, what happens when two of you turn up in court to have a problem sorted out? You are saying to unbelievers, us Christians are people who squabble and fight and we grab for money and we can't resolve our disagreements and we're coming to you to sort us out. Well, how on earth can you expect them to take you seriously when you say, and we've got the good news about the answer to human sin? (laughs) And they're never going to take you seriously, are they? This is a matter of our witness for Jesus. Here's another reason in verse 7. 
The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Imagine this. You see some people walking to uh, the Crown Court. Is it called a Crown Court? Anyway, that court that's in the town centre of Loughborough. And they're on their way for a case. And they're wondering what's the outcome going to be. Will I win my case? Will I make my money? Or will I not? Paul says to the Corinthians, before you've got through the door, you're defeated already. Because your attitude should be this, verse 7. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be treated? If your priorities were right, you'd say, which matters more to me? The damage of being owed some money or the damage that uh, some people are looking down on me? Or the damage to the reputation of Jesus through this court case going ahead? It's a defeat before I've even walked in the door. And in fact, let's not walk through that door. Let's just take the wrong. I'll just put up with being wronged. After all, don't I follow the Lord who said, when someone hits me on one cheek, turn the other cheek to him and let him hit that too. And then there's a final reason he gives them for just don't do this sort of thing. Verse 8. Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers. Here's a tip for when reading the Bible. Look for how it's phrased. Look, for, for, look out for when it's phrased in a way that places an emphasis that, that doesn't naturally have to be there. So verse 8 could say, you cheat your brothers and do them wrong. But it doesn't say that. It says, you cheat and do wrong and do this to your brothers. In other words, there's an emphasis there. Remember, they are your brothers. Jesus has made you family. You're taking your family to court. Well, we've gone through the verses one to eight. I hope we're already seeing some lessons for us. But if we're going to get this right, we have to not just do that. We have to go through the the verses Understand the words, but also do this. Secondly, see the bigger picture. See the bigger picture. Now, I see some people looking at their notice sheets, and I have to admit, I'm not going to quite do what the notice sheet says. It says they're looking back and looking forwards. But I, again, realise I try to cram too much into sermons, so we're not going to do that. Uh, By the way, for those who are interested, it was the Corinthians are failing to look back to the cross and failing to look forward to Jesus returning. But we'll just do the first of those. They're failing to look back. If you've been here through this series on 1 Corinthians, do you remember the, the big theme in 1 Corinthians? And can you spot how chapter 6 is part of that bigger theme? What was the underlying problem in this church? The underlying problem was they were too much like their society. They valued what their society valued. They valued clever people who looked impressive and could talk big. That's what they looked up to. They liked feeling superior to other people. Instead of valuing the cross. Yes, they were thankful Jesus died on that cross, of course. But they didn't see the glory of God dying for others. Oh, it's a good thing and they're saved, yes, but they didn't see this is glory. They didn't see the glory of self-sacrifice. They didn't see this is beautiful and in fact this is God's pattern for life. Yes, of course they believed in the cross, but the cross isn't just to be believed. 
is to be lived. We have to live a cross-shaped life. We carry the cross now and we look forward to the crown ahead. Now, can you see any way that chapter 6 fits that bigger theme? It's like this. People who value impressiveness, people who like to feel superior to others, they're not going to accept any snub. They're not going to accept if they're wronged in any way. They're not going to accept if, if someone else seems to have put them down. No, they must fight back. The way of society, their society and ours, is I must assert myself and demand my rights. And that's what's going on behind chapter 6. The way of the cross is the opposite, though. The way of the cross is I will go without for the sake of others. I will put others before myself. The way of society is I must win and I must have now, so let's get a solicitor. The way of the follower of Jesus is I will carry the cross now because I'm confident there's a crown ahead. And it's not a solicitor who's going to get it for me. It's Jesus. He's already won it for me. I'm, so I'm willing to be bottom of the pile now. We saw this back in chapter 4. I'm willing to be bottom of the pile now because I'll receive honour when Jesus comes back. Well, we've gone through the verses to see what they say. We've asked, how does it fit? Let's remember the big theme of Corinthians. And we see that this is just one part of that big theme. The book does all tie together. And now that that means we're in a position we can ask question three, which is, how is it relevant to us? How is this chapter relevant to us? It seems rather odd at first, doesn't it? Have you known a case of a Christian taking another Christian to court? Sadly, I have, but just one. There's just one that I've personally known because it was at a church I attended. And there were two Christians in that church and they were in business together. And that's a bit of a recipe for trouble sometimes, sadly, because it meant borrowing and lending money and making contracts and who has which customer. And there's, there's a recipe for friction there. And sadly, there was a big fallout and one took the other to court and it was a real mess. Now, thankfully, that is fairly unusual. But sadly, disputes and arguments and fallouts between Christians, sadly, are not so unusual. So 1 Corinthians 6 is relevant to us without having to go to court. It's relevant to disputes between Christians. Think of, think of the church as being like a lantern. Well, Jesus says we're the light, aren't we? Think of an old-fashioned lantern. You know, there's a, a candle or a, or a light with, with a glass case around it. Now, when Christians take each other to court, that's like a great big blob of mud that's on the glass case obscuring the light. That's terrible. That thankfully doesn't happen that often. But sadly, fairly often, the lantern doesn't have a great big blob of mud on it. It's splattered by lots of little splatters of mud. Not Christians going to court, but Christians having the attitude behind these two people in Corinth. When we're pushy with other Christians, when we insist, I must have my way, when we won't accept anything that's inconvenient for me, 
when we won't drop any perceived snub or hurt, but we keep it up and we keep it up. When we don't accuse a fellow Christian in a court case and get a solicitor on side, no, but we accuse them in the, in the court of church rumour and gossip and getting other people on our side. When we use church politics to get our way, because again, we must have things done our way, without ever going to court, we can have the attitudes that Paul is warning against and pleading against here in chapter 6. And so we need the reminder that Paul gives in verse 8. Do you remember again the reminder in verse 8? And these are your brothers and sisters. You are family. Jesus has brought you together. You're going to share a home forever. Now, we all know brothers and sisters can be pushy, can't they? And they can fall out and there can be a lot of friction. But we also know it should not be that way. Remember, you are brothers and sisters. And we also need to remember, behind chapter 6 is the theme of 1 Corinthians. There is glory in the way of the cross. Jesus, he put up with the cross, yes, but he was also, he was also glorified by the cross. There is glory in self-sacrifice. There is glory in putting yourself down low and willing to be wronged and not asserting your rights and doing it out of love for others, including others who are in the wrong, because isn't that exactly what Jesus did for us? That's following Jesus, the way of the cross. The cross, again I'll say, is not just a doctrine to believe. It's to be the shape of how we relate to each other in the church. Here's another way it's relevant to us. Chapter 6, it looks so foreign to us, but it's relevant this way, because 1 Corinthians 6 tells us, stand up for Jesus, not for your supposed rights. Remember the concern behind verse 6. Verse 6, you're doing this in front of unbelievers. In other words, it's saying, this I must have my rights attitude is damaging the honour of Jesus. The church was put here to display Jesus to the world. Now, we live in a world that says, stand up for your rights. I must have my way. But Jesus, what did he say? I will give up my rightful place in heaven. I will give up my comforts. I will give up my honour. I will go to a place of poverty. I will go to a life of being despised. I will even be taken to court. And a court where I will be treated very unjustly and suffer. And I'll do it for others, others who have wronged me. I'll do it for their good. 1 Corinthians 6 is saying, which matters to you more? I must stand up for my rights or I'll display Jesus and his cross-shaped way, even though it means putting up with being wronged. Now, which, which one we are can be hard to tell, but here's a help. A good way to tell which attitude we take is how do you respond to the question in verse 7? Do you see that Paul asks a question in verse 7? Here it is. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? 
Okay. Well, it's a bit of a difficult question to answer just in the abstract. So let's imagine. Let's imagine a Christian owes you £10,000. Okay? Imagine someone else in the church owes you £10,000. It's, it's a lot, but it's not impossible for that to be the case. And isn't paying it. No. And insists it doesn't need to be paid. Now, you could take it. You could take him to the court and you could get it from him because it's yours and he ought to pay it in this imaginary scenario. Or you could drop it. You could take it to him to court and get your 10,000 or you could drop it. And in that situation, God's word says, verse seven, why not be wronged? Why not be cheated? What's your answer? Yeah, it's fairly obvious, isn't it? It's £10,000. And it ought to be mine. £10,000. That could, that could really help with the mortgage. That could be a new car. That could, well, that's the sort of thing that really affects your life, isn't it? That sort of money. And to back down over that, well, what, how else will people take advantage of me? You know, I'm going to look really weak and who else might then just take advantage of me? There's all sorts of answers, aren't there, to that why not be wronged, why not be cheated. We can think of all sorts of reasons to, yes, I, I will, and I've got the right to take him to court and get my money. And what, are, what do all those answers have in common? They're all about me, and they're all about now. And they all come from the attitude of the world, which is me and now. Paul asks, it's, it's, it's amazing really, especially when you consider what trouble there was in Corinth and what a mess there is in Corinth, that Paul asks this question in verse 7. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? And he expects that they won't say, what are you talking about, Paul? Of course I shouldn't be wronged. Because it's my money, it's my way, it's my reputation and I've got a right. He seems to expect that they'll say, oh yeah. You've got a point, Paul. We should just be wronged and be cheated and put up with it. Because he believes they are verse 11 people. For all the mess they're in, he believes they're verse 11 people. Do you see verse 11? I know I'm not getting on to that this evening, but it is all one passage, actually. He believes they are people who are sanctified and justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In other words, he believes the Spirit has rubbed deep into their hearts the cross-shaped attitude of Jesus. He believes for all their problems, in the end, they will have this cross-shaped attitude of Jesus because the Spirit has put it in their hearts. An attitude of, I'll carry the cross now, and I'll trust God for the crown later. And so he expects that they care more about the honour of Jesus than about their rights. For all their problems, he thinks that they will recognise that and come back to that and say, I'll lose the £10,000. Because the church displaying Jesus to the world matters more than £10,000. Do you think so? Well, you answer that in your head. Well, 1 Corinthians 6, what did you think when you saw it's about Christians taking each other to court? It sounds a rather specialised subject. 
it sounds maybe not too relevant to us, unless you know sad cases like the one that, uh, that I described. But a little bit of working at how we approach the Bible has shown that we certainly need this chapter. What areas of your life still need to be cross-shaped? What ways you treat others? What attitudes you have still need to take on that shape of the cross? Still need to be shaped this way. I'll carry the cross now and I'll trust God for the crown later. Let's pray for that now.